Episode 72, The Field of Light. Elizabeth Hancock from Work Your Energy podcast and this week I am very very excited to introduce to you Betty Kovash, PhD. Uh, she's an author and researcher of symbology on comparative literature and I've just finished reading her book Merchants of Light which is absolutely incredible. Um, you really should read it, it really is amazing and today we're going to be talking a little bit around the book and I'm going to be asking her some questions, things, areas of interest to me and hopefully to you as well. So hi Betty, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much Elizabeth. <laughs> It's so great to have you here, it really is. And let me just again say how incredible your book is, you know, was when I read it. I mean, I just felt as I was reading it, I felt like just download after download after download, <laughs> you know? Um, it really, really incredible. And I feel like I really connected with all the different sort of imagery that you paint in there. Um, you know, and of course, you've got so much research and science in there as well. So it's a wonderful combination, a wonderful mix. And, um, you know, what prompted you to write this book? Well, I taught mythology and symbolic language and comparative literature for many years. But I think for most of my life, I had questions of just as I was becoming conscious of being in the world, I had the questions of what is it all about? Uh, in fact, my brother and I, when we were very young, used to play a game of uh, what if there wasn't a world? <laughs> We'd say, what if there wasn't a world? And we keep trying to do that until we come to a point in which it really felt like there was no world. And then the world came flooding back in. So we were just both very concerned. But how come, as he said uh, to my mother one time when he was a little guy, he said, you know what I'm going to do when I go to heaven, I'm going to walk right up to God and I'm just going to ask him, how come all this anyhow? <laughs> so as kids, we were always trying to figure it out. And I think that particular desire, that longing was with me all of my life. So I, well, I went to university and thought, well, I'll find answers there. But I mainly found uh, out about the Western worldview, which we now know be through quantum physics is not adequate. But the Western worldview, of course, as we all know, is that there's nothing but matter. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. We're just a fluke of nature. And when we're dead, it's all over. That seemed dreadful to me, and it is dreadful. And we can see around the world the effects of that kind of worldview. When we see the violence and the sorrow and the wars and people really looking for some kind of meaning or haven't given up, you know, that there's nothing anyway. So I had those, I think I'm just, I was a child of my time, of our time. I had those questions. So I continued and I studied then religion and I, then I went to mythology, and then I went to ritual and shamanism. And I went to South America a couple of times and worked with shamans in South America. And I still was searching. I also uh, had started reading Carl Jung. I think he is one person who is a great mentor for our age because he was scientific in all of his work. 
but he also knew about experiencing the shamanistic side of life, the visionary, and he himself had many, but he was open to that, to dream, to vision, and he was so important to me. So uh, even by the, I guess, the 80s, I still, I was pretty sure there was something, but I knew I wanted to experience it more than I had through the, the dreams. And then when our son was killed, uh, in a car accident at 20, my husband and I did experience his consciousness. And then I knew, I knew. And I this this incredible uh, dimension of spirit, of, of the archetype and the symbol, then I experienced it. I knew, I knew it's real. <laughs> so I was very grateful for that. Yes, I love that experience that you talk about with you and your husband. You know, and then of course your husband died a year later. You know, and how how did that leave you feeling then? So you knew that you could connect still with people who had passed over. So you know, did did that leave you feeling um, happier? You know, sort of obviously not happy to lose your husband, but you know, having more hope, if you like, that you hadn't completely lost him. You still had part of him and your son. Well, it was uh, two years and four months. Thank <clears throat> heavens, one year would be uh, really harder. Um, yes, it, it. by the time he died, he and I had had so many experiences with our son's consciousness. And our son not only wanted us to know that he was fine, that he was still alive, still creating, and he also wanted us to remember what the earth is going through, that in the years coming, uh, there were going to be really difficult periods, but he wanted us to know something of what that was about and why we had chosen to come to the earth at this time. So by the time my husband Ishvan was killed, we had had, he had had several visions that he was going to be, die. And yet he kept looking at it symbolically. You know, my son had also had visions from the time he was 12 years old, and then very strongly in the last year of his life. I had two years of dreams that he was, but I looked at it symbolically, which was good because then we could go on living life happily. But uh, my husband had very strong visions that he, he was dying or would die. But he said, I'm just, I'm changing because he hadn't been interested in any of this before. And then his life was just totally changed. When he had the first vision, he just said, I will never look at the earth in the same way again. He was just so moved and transformed by it. And this is the, our heritage. We should all be able to tune in to that dimension. That's our source. That's who we are. So um, after he died, uh, I did continue to have experiences with them both. And uh, and now it's more, I, I don't have those powerful experiences, but I feel their presence in the work and in my life. And by the, so by the time my husband died, I knew a little bit more about what was going on. And it was easier. I, I'm not saying it was easy <laughs> because I lost my mother in a car accident one year before our son, then our son, and then two years later, my husband. So my family was gone. Right. And so, yes, I had to do some <clears throat> deep adjusting and transforming. So as a mother and a wife, as a daughter, it was difficult. But the fact that the visions gave me a larger picture made it possible. Yes. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it must be like to, to lose, you know, the three closest people to you. 
But I can I can imagine that still being able to connect with their consciousness in that way must have been hugely um, uplifting, you know, and 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 left you, you know, that you didn't have a, a gaping hole in your body, no. you know, that you still no. you you still knew that they were okay, you could still connect with them. Yes, yes, that's that's so important. I had feared death all my life because my mother's uh, mother had died when she was young and the mother before her had died. The women had died at an early age and I was so afraid of losing my mother. So death was just a horrible thing to me. But with the experience of our son's consciousness after his death, and I knew how alive that world is. And it's not like speaking with the dead, it's speaking with those who are very much alive and very much connected to their wholeness. And again, I want to say, this is our heritage. Our ancestors so wanted us to know that to be in touch with that other dimension of reality, uh, we are really connected to it, like with an umbilical cord. And it is our heritage to be able to be in contact with it. And when those we love die, to be able to consciously uh, communicate with them. Yeah. And that is, that's what heals us, to know that larger picture. Otherwise, yeah. it is a gaping hole. <laughs> yes, yes, no, absolutely. My mother died nine years ago, you know, and it was it was after she died that it was through the grief I started to hear her voice and then I started to talk to her, um, you know, and then something like sort of it, something happened, you know, which made me understand that I sort of I began to ask myself, am I really talking to her? And then I realized I actually really was talking to her and it's escalated from there, you know, and as I talked about, you know, I, I researched this myself for my own book because at the same time, my daughter was experiencing strange things in the house. You know, she was talking about her past life as if it was, you know, yesterday. And um, she was very little. And she was she was seeing things in the house everywhere, you know. And, and so I began to explore this. I, I really began to ask myself, could this be real? When, when it's your own child, you know, you take on a much stronger curiosity, I think, because you want to know what's happening to them. Um, and I began exploring quantum physics, you know, um, multiple dimensions, all sorts of things. And this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I think in my mind, I still have that rational mind switched on, you know, and I'm still trying, I'm still asking, can I see these things in real life? You know, am I able to see these different, whatever it is in my head, you know, these, these images, these visions in my head can I see them in real life or are they purely for our inner world is it is it our subconscious mind connecting with us in the only way it knows how through images and visions and, and metaphors and is that is that how is, is that the only way we can experience it is through our inner world oh <laughs> uh, well we're all influenced by the power and domination of the left brain, the rational mind. And so we have to think of ourselves as Westerners who have been brought up within the left brain domination. And so even when we ask the question, will it only be only in my mind? <laughs> it's already probably a left brain question, isn't it? Because it is possible some people do see these beings actually make an appearance. And we're told that that takes a lot of energy from the other side to make that kind of appearance. Now they do, and there are those who see them clearly, and many of us see it occasionally, 
for me, it was all inner. And but it was the inner seeing can be as powerful as seeing it in the outer world. <laughs> as a matter of fact, it can be extraordinarily powerful. And the more that we have those experiences with the spirit world, the more we realize its power and its reality within us. And it doesn't have to appear outside. It doesn't seem like a better thing or more real thing for it to appear outside. Although when it does, it's, it's, <laughs> it is powerful. But I think it's equally and Ultimately, I think maybe even more powerful because of the tremendous power within that spirit world. So I think that the left brain wants it in the material world. But when we look at matter, we now know through physics that it's the way spirit behaves in the physical universe. Mm -hmm. So matter is spirit, <laughs> but it's a more, we might say, a coagulated heavier matter so that we can play these games in matter. Um, but I think we come at a point in which if we see it and feel it in the inner world, we know it's true. But yeah. that's a process. I had to really go through that of being able to, when I was in a vision, I knew absolutely how real and powerful this was. Then when I was no longer in the vision, my left brain would click in and start questioning it and doubting it. Where's the proof? Where's this? Where's that? You know, it's really a, a kind of a pathological response because what we did in the Western world, not only did we emphasize only the left brain, we said all the rest was nonsense. And we severed ourselves from this symbolic brain, which is in touch with the other brain components and the heart. And it's the heart that opens us to spirit. Mm -hmm. So when we've done that, we have this left brain severed and it does crazy things, kind of pathological things and demands certain things, you know? And then as we begin to connect it, then there's a kind of calming and being able to be more within that inner world and see its power and its reality. Yes, certainly um, because we feel the inner world, the, I think the feeling is transformational, isn't it? That feeling that we get, and maybe even more trans transformational than seeing, maybe. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Exactly. And, you know, the, uh, the ancient Egyptian civilization was highly developed in its shaman, mystic, and scientific abilities. Mm -hmm. And they emphasized the heart, as did all our ancient shamanistic cultures and mystical cultures, the heart. And they said that without feeling, nothing can happen. Life cannot continue to unfold without feeling. And what did we do in the Western world? You know, we'd say, I don't care how you feel. Just tell me, give me the facts. You know, as if that's the only thing that mattered. We have to recognize we are pathological. You cannot sever all of the brain components and sever ourselves from the heart and expect to have a healthy civilization. And we do not. People are killing themselves and everybody else on the earth because they have, they're, they're not connected. And we are graduating. We are the generations today that are waking up to this. And just as you've said, it's feeling. Feeling is everything. Yeah. And there are many levels of feeling. Yeah, I think uh, I think that you you've said it exactly right. That you know, 
because we've lost the feeling that's why there's so much depression so much suicide because we need the feeling we you know we need the feeling and the feeling is the subconscious mind and um the subconscious mind you know is is the land of imagery and vision so i can see definitely that the we we have to be able to feel those wonderful wonderful emotions inside because it's that that keeps us going and without that you have that emptiness and i think that's where everyone is now is that emptiness oh yes i think so uh it's just the feeling that everything is dead and we can't feel it we can't experience it but um there was a a theorist of symbolic language as early as the 1700s and his name was Jean-Baptiste Vico from Italy. And he saw very clearly, he didn't use the left brain, right brain terminology. What he said is this, and it's so important, is that there, our first language is symbolic language. It develops before rational conceptual language. And we now know that develops in the right brain. And so he said, it's this, uh, it has a logic. People say, oh, dreams are just, they're crazy. Did you eat too much? Or, you know, can't pay attention to that, you know. And he said, dreams have a logic. The dreams and the visions and the symbols have a logic. It's a poetic logic. And that poetic logic feeds the left brain. The left brain couldn't really exist without some connection, even unknowingly with the right brain. It feeds this into the left brain. And the left brain then has the ability, it's a wonderful ability, to take these situations, take them apart, analyze them, look at them, but it becomes very pathological if it doesn't reconnect with the right brain because the right brain, symbolic brain, gives us our wholeness. So Vico said this, it is so important that we recognize the equality of these, the right and the left, although we must also recognize that they're are greater aspects to the right brain because it gives us the whole picture. So this, he said, there must always be a movement between the two, that there must be an integral and dynamic continuum of movement if we expect to experience our wholeness or if the mind can experience its own wholeness. That's beautiful. There have been people, many people who've written today about how this works, but he had it, I think, in a nutshell, is that if we don't continually go back continually into the right brain to get the feeling, the wholeness, the value, then we cut ourselves off and we become killers. We become pathological. We become depressed. And that's what we are. And so our job today is to allow ourselves to reconnect to that continuously. Mm. But the left brain is wonderful. It's a wonderful aspect that we can take things apart and analyze, but only if we then go back to that larger dimension of these parts. <laughs> yes, I sort of see it, the way I sort of see it in my mind, and I think this is probably how I wrote about it in my book, you know, it's sort of, the energy field is continuously upgrading us and interacting us. And it's sort of, if you like, it's coming in the right side of the brain, um, you know, and then that's where, you know, sort of all the magic happens. And then, you know, it goes into the left side of the brain, you know, and then the brain is sort of analyzing it. But I sort of see the brain more as like sort of a receiver of information from the energy field. And so if we, if we cut that 
um, you know, that part, that side of the, the, the brain off, we're not connected to the energy field. And so therefore, we're not being sort of continuously up, upgraded, uplifted with consciousness. And I see consciousness as this thing which is just constantly, you know, evolving and growing. And we need to be part of that. Well, you said it beautifully, is that, as someone said, we are all born out of universal consciousness. We're all, that's who we are. And yet we have a valve in the brain that we can sort of reduce that vast consciousness to a trickle so that we can do interviews <laughs> or we can, you know, get our groceries, brush our teeth, whatever. But that we are that vast consciousness. And every culture has to know to survive. It needs to know how to release that valve and experience who we are as it's flowing, as you described so beautifully, it's flowing into us. Some people see it coming down through the crown chakra, others coming into the heart, but it is constantly coming in. But if we have that valve that blocks it, then of course we're not experiencing it. And the shamans, which began all around the world, around 40,000 BCE, they all around the world figured out how to release that valve. And that's what changed everything. Yes, and that was the thing, you see, I was wondering, did they get some help? Did they learn this by themselves or did they actually get some help? And maybe this help, you know, is the um, the shining ones or the merchants of light, as you talk about in your book. Um, you know, they sort of, they, if you like, they energetically manifested into physical form to help people at this time. Or, of course, Atlantis is also supposed to have formed around 50,000 years ago as well you know and i know that's a, a great big civilization um this is what anyway these are the th sort of the, the questions i had in my mind yeah. well and i think they are good <clears throat> questions and i think there's ample evidence now that we know that there was probably a worldwide civilization uh long before any civilization that we know of historically um but i think that we always think well did they do it on their own Perhaps and perhaps not. Now, I think that, you know, they did rituals. And for, you know, there are a lot of things we know intuitively that we don't need someone outside of us to tell us, although it's great if they do. But sometimes we know intuitively. And we, I think they knew intuitively, they wanted to connect, and they did rituals. And we now know that that repetitiveness of rituals causes, creates a brainwave that moves through all of the brain components and integrates them. And of course, allows this other consciousness to, to re exist. So anatomically, we were uh, capable of this 200,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the big question is, why did we not know how to do this until 40,000? There are a lot of answers to that, or at least uh, suggestions. But now the other possibility that we didn't learn it intuitively, or let's say one or two people or people here and there learned it. And then of course, they would want to teach it to others. That's a possibility. There is also the possibility that there were those uh, from other planets who did uh, give us a gift that enhanced our evolutionary potentials. Greg Braden uh, and talks about what scientists now know that within the DNA, it is very clear that there's a point at which we can see that that DNA was enhanced and changed. 
by the something chromosome else. Chromosome two. Yeah. Is that the chromosome two that it was fused together? Yes, fused together. Yeah. So I I I'm certainly uh that's that's an enormous discovery uh, because we have these stories, these myths that there were those on the planet uh, who were, we call them gods, which uh, in this case would probably mean people who were highly advanced. And there's also after the flood that supposedly uh, was worldwide and destroyed these earlier civilizations, that there were those who survived and they were merchants of light, the shining ones, uh, who went around the world to reignite that knowledge of who we are and to give uh, information on agriculture or how to live and that kind of thing. So there are too many myths around the world about this for us to just uh, dismiss it. <laughs> you know. And I think now we're actually finding scientific evidence that there were two periods of great uh, collapse, you might say, uh, a catastrophe. So I think that both are possible, you know, but now that we know that, but again, this fusion, which gave us this possibility, I think was around 200,000. Why did it take us so long? You know, and then we have to ask the question, well, okay, people in our past have done it. Why are we not doing it? Yes. You know? <laughs> and that, that actually is one of my questions, but yeah, you know, let, let's go back to this, this great flood, because this is another one of my questions. So you know, during the Younger Dryas period, so 10 to 12,000, um, the, there was obviously, you know, a, a great sort of cataclysm, you know, that happened and probably even two floods, you know, um, a, a smaller yeah. one and then a much, much bigger one. And this would have wiped out pretty much everything that had gone before. And, um, you know, do you, do you feel, because we, you talk a lot, I mean, I, I get this sense in your book, you know, there's this sort of this constant, Toing and froing between masculine, feminine energy, you know, and the, the masculine energy is always trying to wipe out the feminine energy, um, you know, and it's sort of, it, it, for me, I feel like it's sort of just flowing through the energy field the whole time. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what would have happened at that time, you know, if there was this great flood, we had these, um, these shining ones or the merchants of light coming and uh, kick-starting or restarting civilization at various different points around the world and you can see the different continents it happened at different continents at exactly the same time it didn't just happen in one area so you know these different um sort of indigenous people you know who were kick-started at different different points uh, around the world and then was this when when it was kick-started was this again a feminine time or was this a masculine feminine time you know um I know, like, sort of, what are your thoughts around this, uh, if you even have any thoughts around this? So I'm just... Oh, yes, I have a lot of thoughts about that. If we look at our own past, we can see that uh, in the earliest stages that we know of, uh, from 40,000 uh, or several centuries after that, that the feminine is the central focus because she is the birth giver, she maintains life, and she takes the bodies back into her body, the earth or the feminine body at death. And then she gives rebirth to all life again. So it was this cycle of nature because the feminine is really life here in matter. It's the sacred matter. And it is nature. It is the cosmos. It is the heart 
consciousness, its soul. And that was very powerful from 40,000 all the way. And it, I mean, some of the cultures were just extraordinary in balancing. I would say that the Egyptian culture did a beautiful job of balancing these two hemispheres, the masculine and the feminine. And in the first temple Judaism, uh, still the mystics were strong and the feminine was highly honored. She was central. Uh, which And then at 621 BCE, uh, under Josiah and the Deuteronomist, all of that was destroyed. All of the images of the feminine were destroyed. And the trees, her, which was her sacred image, she had groves of trees all burned down. And she had sacred literature, the wisdom literature, which was literature of the mystic, was wiped out and thrown out of Judaism. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of interesting later, you know, when it, there was such the masculine divinity in Judaism later, is that when uh, archaeologists started finding hundreds of feminine images in their digs in around Israel, uh, but that had been destroyed. But there were Jews who took the wisdom literature and the feminine to Egypt, and that survived. So that was the beginning in the West of the destruction of the feminine. And uh, yet we have again uh, in uh, about 500 BCE, I studied them as the pre-Socratic philosophers. I had no idea they were shamans, but Peter Kingsley has done incredible work in showing how these pre-Socratic philosophers were powerful shamans and mystics and teachers and diplomats and scientists. It's just an incredible. And they continued even after the church uh, gained power. When the Roman church gained power, they carried on the uh, exclusiveness of uh, the Deuteronomist of later Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, so that the feminine was nowhere to be seen, except as the mother, but she wasn't divine. <laughs> so I think in the West, the reason we see the wipeout of the feminine is because of these political uh, powers that had not experienced this inner wisdom and wanted to control. And I think in the case of the Deuteronomist, they wanted to preserve the Jewish people. And with the Roman church, it was definitely, they wanted power over people. And that we lost the feminine that way. So that's Western history in a sense. And we didn't even know, uh, and I say this in the book, that we didn't know until the 20th century that we had had these powerful shaman mystic traditions mm -hmm. in the West, that we had a deep spiritual tradition. Peter Kingsley and others have pointed out these uh, pre-Socratics experienced samadhi. They experienced cosmic consciousness. We didn't know we had that in our, in our uh, culture, but that's the roots of who we are. So I think, you know, you could look at it two ways. After the flood, people could, okay, they had to rebuild. So they'd need, you know, masculine or left brain consciousness, but they also wanted to connect to something meaningful. So it would depend a lot, I suppose, on the particular tribe. What happened is that when these merchants of light or shining ones went around the world to help them, they did help them reconnect to that ancient shaman mystic tradition, as well as how to how to live in time and space. So it many of our indigenous cultures pretty much were connected to the earth and to the feminine, uh, as well as honoring the masculine. But it's Western culture 
that uh, had so much censorship that it pretty much destroyed us spiritually. Okay, and so that happened, did you say, around 621 uh, BCE? The Deuteronomist, um, yes. Yeah. The first temple. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, okay, so that was much later than I thought then. So the, the pharaohs, the Egyptians, you know, they were still very much honor, honoring the, the feminine and the masculine together, yeah? Well, they did, uh, yes, <clears throat> uh, for quite a while. But then, of course, there is always that tendency in us uh, to lose balance, you might say. And when Akhenaten came oh. along, he at first did, there was this balancing of, of masculine and feminine, but then it was less the divine here in, on the earth and the divine feminine, but the sun god, that which was absent, but present, but at a distance. And of course, that's Judaism, or, well, and the Roman church. It's that uh, where is the God? It's not here. The masculine God is somewhere else. The feminine divine is always present. She's always here with us, in us, and in nature, cannot be separated from her. So it's always easy to, to give that up and see things at a distance. You know, It's always easy to get caught in one or the other. We, we don't want to be just right brain either. You know, we've got both. And the real challenge of civilization is how do we allow both of them to exist and communicate continually? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, then I think um, I'll put this question in now. So thinking of the left and right brain. And so we're thinking of the left brain being masculine and the right brain being feminine. And you talk, what you talk about is the the rise of the narcissistic um if you like personality, you know, which is now 10% of the population, which is sort of like they, the, the, <clears throat> the lack of compassion, the lack of empathy. And you talk about the um, alexithymia, the hormones from the heart cannot flow to the brain. So this is, you know, an actual hormonal thing. And, you know, why has this happened then? You know, it, I, I feel like this isn't nature. Surely nature no. wouldn't do that. No, no, it's not. And as I've said, we pretty much had that balance or worked toward achieving it. But then Ooh. when people were challenged, I think the Jews were always being taken over or shipped out or whatever. And there were those who wanted to preserve their uh, existence, you might say, as a people. And so I can see how a group could come in and feel that there's only by having a central force of power telling people what to do, that they could exist that way. I think there's also always an element of wanting that power because they don't have the inner power. You know, I think we see that today. We see leaders around the world who are so undeveloped and so in need of control and power. Uh, and it's just a, a pathological sign of not having an inner life. But first of all, we have to say that we all have the masculine and feminine. People who write today about the left brain, right brain, don't want to say the right brain is feminine, left brain masculine, because they will be attacked. And, you know, because we're not just, as women, we yeah. have the masculine and the feminine, and men have the feminine and the masculine, and we develop it in different ways. So that belongs to both of us. But I would say as a mythologist to those people refusing to say it's masculine and feminine, is that historically, 
and symbolically, the feminine is, has the characteristics of the right brain and and the masculine. I mean, the masculine is absolutely beautiful and profound, yeah. as is the feminine when they are working together. Yeah. And that is our challenge. How do we do that? We don't cancel one out for the other. It's that how do we achieve that integration and that continual movement between the two? That's our challenge. Well, I think it's to do with the wounded feminine and the wounded masculine. So, you know, which I think sort of the way I see it is that it creates blockages and they're just not able to connect to the heart. You know, the, the wounded, like they just, uh, the wounded masculine, the wounded feminine as well, are not able to connect to their heart. There's so many, there's so much, they, you know, they, they can't bear to look inside. They're too, uh, there's too much pain, basically, too much pain. And if you think about the, you know, the childhood that so many children have, you know, with the, you know, the, the parents who are stressed out of their mind because they're having to work 50 hour weeks, you know, and bring up children and worry about money, you know, and they're, they're, there's just so much, so much. And it means, you know, and of course, now we understand that the school environment actually creates post-traumatic stress disorder in children because of the, the way that children are with each other, you know, the bullying and everything. Um, you know, there's the conditioning within the education system as well. So in a sense, when the child get, gets to the age of 18, 19, 20, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're already destroyed inside. They already have so many wounds. And so if you're not doing the self-development or the inner work that's needed to heal that, I think you're going to start moving more towards, you know, the, the, the control, the fear, the, the, the ego side of, of the mind. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, yes, it's it's true. Uh, and then we have to say, well, what is ego? And the way I like to look at that is that you know, as we're when we're children, mm -hmm. we're just so totally in nature. And if we have love, uh, a position of in a family that loves us, a lot in the world doesn't touch us except the loving aspects. We seem to draw that to ourselves, and so we develop. Then we begin to become self conscious we are aware oh i'm an individual and we begin to think about that and what we want to do in the world but this is i would say ego consciousness is simply in its natural form would be self-consciousness i am aware i am an individual self and that's a normal stage of development and it is funny how with children it is kind of everything centers around them you know it's a kind of interesting thing to watch and that's perfectly normal. But as we grow, we become aware of everybody else in the whole world and how to live with other people and realize they have what they desire to as well as we do. So it's a normal form of development. The next stage of development, however, would be to see that we are a born out of cosmic consciousness, this universal consciousness, and begin to experience altered states of consciousness in which we realize this. And when we actually experience cosmic consciousness or this vastness, even to some degree of who we are, then the ego finds its place. It is reflecting the inner world. Mm -hmm. That's what it's to do, this great self. We are the divine and the ego reflects that. But in our culture, because we never learn how to go inward, then we're constantly looking outward 
And we, we will snatch and grab anything that will give that ego some sense of this greatness. You know, it's never going to be enough. And that's why we see these people who have to take over more land and more this and more that and more people get more money. It just, it's a pathology. But at, at that stage of development, we're fully self-conscious now, but we're aware that we're part, that we're all one. Every single one of us are united in this one energy system. And that is a consciousness far vaster than my ego consciousness. So then it begins to reflect that great self within, the capital S <laughs> self. Mm -hmm. And that's when it's natural. But I say it's so often when I write about it, it's flipped wrong side out because we don't have that inner knowledge. And so it's looking for anything to make us feel great about ourselves. And that's pathological. But the ego itself is a very healthy uh, if it is developing in its natural way. Yes, my understanding is, is that, you know, without the ego, we wouldn't be living the physical reality that we're living. So, you know, it's a fundamental part of, of us experiencing this, you know, this reality, this life, if you like. Yes. But I, I, yes. Do, I just do feel that the, you know, the ego or, I don't know, the control or whatever it may be has just gone mad. You know, I mean, the way that people are behaving in the world, you know, I mean, it, the, 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 the destruction, you know, the, the control... You know, when I when I was going through your book, you know the the the, the way that the church has or religion has behaved, you know, with just murdering people that that they can't control. Um, you know, the the mystery um, schools went underground. But I just I just feel like why why have these people gone insane? You know, why are they destroying the very planet that they live on? You know, where their children are supposed to be having their children and having their children. I feel that there's, I don't know, I don't understand it. Well, and we can't understand it if we try to think logically. <laughs> but we, if we recognize that it mm -hmm. is a pathology, it is a serious mental pathology, if I can emphasize it in that way, because it has not experienced that. It has not gone inward. In fact, even to talk about it sounds kind of weird because we're so alien to that understanding. But it's it's a way of, of focus, to focus inwardly and in the natural world and others and to have that understanding. But there's no, we know that it's, we have to expect this pathology, given the fact that from the Deuteronomist on, and in, I only focus on the Western world, there was that lack of going inward. And many Jews did not go along with the Deuteronomist. Those who had experienced the first temple, shaman, mystic tradition, left it. They left it when it was destroyed, the second temple, because it did not follow what they felt was the true intention of the divine. For instance, we've discovered in uh, right after World War II, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, these were Jews that who had settled around the Dead Sea. They had a huge library, and they said they would not go along with Second Temple. And they said, we are carrying the true covenant of Israel, which was that inner connectedness. And then there were Essenes. It's seems that if Jesus was a historical person, he was an Essene. If Mary Magdalena was, they were Essenes. These were also mystics that would not go along with the Second Temple. They were First Temple Jews. In fact, 
uh, Margaret Barker, an Old Testament scholar, sees Jesus or those mystics he represents as being a rebirth, a renaissance of the first temple tradition. He was a shaman mystic. Now, let's say we don't know whether he was historical or not, although many people today are finding evidence they think says he is, but there were in Egypt, some of the Jews who went there were Essenes or called Therapeutae. And there were those later, even at the time of the Roman church, who believed that it was the mystics in Egypt, the Therapeutae, who actually wrote the Gospels, that if Jesus existed, he had been a part of that. Well, we know he was a part of the mystical tradition, whether we want to call it uh, Essene or Therapeutae or nothing at all, <laughs> that he was a rebirth of this ancient First Temple tradition. And there was a, a, a mystic from India who had a vision on the ship coming to America. He actually said, I was visited by an old mystic from the Therapeutae, and he told me that they did write the Gospels, that mm -hmm. the Jesus image was a part of the Therapeutae. So, but, they were all over the Palestinian area. They did not go along with Second Temple, but they had the political power. And then the Roman church got the political power and would not allow anything about going inward. As a matter of fact, those Christians or people who had had mystical experiences and knew that this was a viable tradition called Gnostic tradition in Christianity, but it was simply the spiritual going inward. They were called heretics by the church and they were killed or certainly dismissed as harshly as they could be. The church was totally against the inner experience. I had two students who had had experiences and in their, their, their need, they were you know, they had gone through a lot and they needed community and they did join a church. And the church convinced them that their experiences were nothing. They were of the devil. Now, the church did some bad things, and many churches do not do that today. Some still do. And I bring it up only to say this was how strong the church was in denying altered states of consciousness or who we are within. And that has been so pervasive and then when, you know, and I, I wish we had a chance to talk about some of the things I have in the book, because this was all of these shaman mystic traditions had to go underground, but they kept coming back. And there wasn't just one renaissance in Western culture. There was, first of all, the high Middle Ages, powerful, powerful rebirth of the feminine and the inner tradition, uh, the, the psychic way or spiritual way of life. And then in the Italian, then in... Uh, the Rosicrucian, which came about 160 years after the Italian, which was a continuation of that spiritual attempt to find ourselves, there were scientists and mystics. And when the church found out about it, it destroyed it. And there was a 30 years war of fighting between Catholics and Protestants. And when scientists then could legitimately gather together again in England, in the Royal Society for the Study of Science, they knew they could not study anything but matter because the church, they would lose their reputation or be killed. So that's why we have a, a material worldview. It, they actually, scientists were prohibited to study anything of the mind. But these scientists, some who were part of that, had been doing just that. They were mystics and scientists. So it didn't come full circle until quantum physics. Quantum physics then brought that back. 
And now we see there are many dimensions of reality and we have access to it. Part two of this episode carries on next week. Bye for now.